because of that, you and I uh, are able to be clothed in His righteousness. And those two aspects, which is the second and the third point of imputation, are really the doctrines that were touted initially the first few centuries. And then when Latin became the primary language, and the Latin Bible, the Vulgate, was the, you know, the, the main the text in the language that everyone understood, it was then that the, because of the term that was used here in Romans, or we're going to look at Romans, oh, we didn't read Romans yet, but that's one of the texts. That was what we looked at last week. Because of the, the wording of Romans 4 and Romans 5, and how they used the Latin word for imputation that really carried over into English, that's when all of a sudden the, uh, the idea that Adam's sin passed on to us became significant enough that now when you talk about imputation, those are the three things that are used. And so last week we dealt with that first one, that uh, wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. That is uh, what we call original sin. And then tonight we're going to look at the second thing, which was the first thing, uh, and that is the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That, In fact, we read in Isaiah, The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He became our substitute. Our sin was imputed to him. So let's bow in prayer and then uh, we'll go over and, and just jump right in. Please pray with me. Father, thank you again for the word, your word. As holy men of God spake as they were moved by your Holy Spirit. And now, Father, we get to be led by that same Spirit so that you can illuminate the Scriptures and teach us. And Father, I pray that tonight that I would rightly divide the word of truth, that I'd properly interpret the Scriptures so that I'm not giving my own opinion or wandering off somewhere where you really have not articulated something. Uh, help us to be thoroughly scriptural tonight. And I thank you, Lord, for this morning and the blessing of uh, this dear congregation. And we just pray again for our, our beloved family, church family, and friends that you administer to them. And Father, help us tonight to grasp the precious truths of the Scriptures. And may we be certain tonight that Jesus died for us, that our sin uh, was paid for, that we would fully grasp the ramifications of that and be sure that we are saved the Bible way. We ask your blessing in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I want to read to you again um, a statement that a a theologian made uh, as far as uh, what imputation is. It's it's used in in a threefold sense to denote the judicial acts of God by which, number one, the guilt of Adam's sin was imputed to his posterity. That's us. Number two, the sins of Christ's people are imputed to him on Calvary. That's what we're looking at tonight. And then three, uh, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to his people. And then the author says this, It is not meant that Adam's sin was personally the sin of his descendants, but that it was set to their account. That's important. That's when we study the Word. You have to understand, not just in that first one, but especially in the second and third one, exactly what that means. So it is not meant that Adam's sin was personally the sin of his descendants. 
And there's in theology, they have the whole teaching of the federal headship of Adam versus the seminal headship. We're not going to get into all of that because I know I would put you to sleep. But they are significant things. Uh, he also goes on. It is not meant that Christ shares personally in the sins of men, but that the guilt of his people's sins was set to his account so that he bore its penalty. And this is the point that the Lord has been driving home on in me recently as I've been studying this whole thing of imputation, <clears throat> is clarifying that when the Bible says, He hath made him to be sin for us, Jesus Christ was completely the whole time the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. He bore the penalty of our sins. He did not become the filth. Uh, he was always the sinless Lamb of God. So we have to keep that in mind. And then thirdly, the writer says, and it is not meant that Christ's people are made personally holy or inwardly righteous by the imputation of His righteousness to them, but that His righteousness is set to their account so that they are entitled to all the rewards of that perfect righteousness. We'll focus on that next week. So three things we're going to look at tonight. What is the substitutionary atonement of Christ? That's the second doctrine of imputation, the substitutionary atonement. Uh, Three things we're going to highlight tonight is that what Jesus did on the cross in atoning for our sin is not earned, but accepted. Number two, it is wholly His work, not ours. And then thirdly, it is vicarious. You might have heard of that term. We'll talk about that. And my goal is to not have your eyes gloss over when I speak about the vicarious atonement of Christ. It is it's pretty important, and, and I think we can do that if I'm, if I'm up for the task. So look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, the substitutionary atonement, it is earned, or it's not earned, but it is accepted. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he, God the Father, hath made him, God the Son, to be sin for us who knew no sin. That's talking about Jesus Christ. He knew no sin. He was the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. But He literally paid. He took our place. That's what imputation is. Our sin was charged to His account. Now, we're 100% guilty. It was our sin. Totally, you know, 100%. And he ended up being the the one that paid the penalty for it so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That second phrase is what we're going to look at at last week. week. Now I want to read to you a quote from Oswald Chambers. What What a wonderful, godly man and what an incredible writer. If you've never had the opportunity to read of any of Oswald Chambers' writings, they are very deep and very... Um, holy and devotional. He said this. He said, We trample the blood of the Son of God if we think we are forgiven because we are sorry for our sins. The only explanation for the forgiveness of God and for the unfathomable depth of His forgetting is the death of Jesus Christ. Take note of this distinction. Our repentance is merely the outcome of our personal realization of the atonement of which He has worked out for us. It does not matter who or what we are. There is 
absolute reinstatement into God by the death of Jesus Christ and by no other way, not because Christ, because Jesus Christ pleads, but because he died. It is not earned, but it is accepted. That's my point here. All the pleading which deliberately refuses to recognize the cross is of no avail. That's, that's important because so many people mistake religion and other religious efforts or demonstrations as the same thing as salvation. Again, all the pleading which deliberately refuses to recognize the cross is of no avail. It is battering at a door other than the one that Jesus has opened. Our Lord does not pretend that we are all right when we are all wrong. The atonement is a propitiation. We'll look at that word a little while. It is a propitiation whereby God, through the death of Jesus Christ, makes an unholy man holy. What a blessing. So, it is all based on what Jesus Christ did for us on Calvary. That's why Paul gloried in the cross and nothing else. That's why Paul preached the cross and not himself, which he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So to understand, when we talk about atonement, it was the substitutionary atonement. That's what imputation is. It was imputed. It was reckoned. Our offense, the judgment we deserve, he took on himself. There is a story uh, from a book that came out, I believe. Uh, no, this was a different story. Between the, in, in, during the war between Britain and France, uh, men were conscripted to go into the French army by a, a kind of a lottery system. And uh, when someone's name was drawn... They had to go off to battle. There's other countries that also practice this, I think, even to this day. So there was this, during this, during the, again, the the war between Britain and France, during this thing, there was only one exception that somebody could avoid military service. A person could be exempt if someone else was willing to take their place. And on one occasion, uh, during the war, authorities came to a certain man and told him that he was among those who had been chosen to serve, which was his duty. And um, he claimed that uh, he did not need to go. And he made this bizarre, which sounded like an excuse, sounded like he was maybe losing his mind a little bit. He said, I don't need to go because I was shot two years ago. And they first questioned his sanity, uh, but he insisted that that was the case. He claimed, uh, when they said, you know, how can that be? He said, you're alive, you, you know, and, and there, there's no visible wounds. And he explained that when his name came up several years ago, a f- close friend of his approached him and said, listen, you have a large family, you're married, people need you and are depending on you. I'm single and I'm not, you know, there's, not, as, there's nobody depending on me. He said, let me serve in your stead. And they allowed him. And that man was shot and killed in military battle. And uh, when, they, when they searched it out, uh, in, face, in fact, the case went all the way up to Napoleon, and he decided that the, our, the country had no legal claim on the man. He was free because someone else had died in his stead. What an illustration of what Jesus Christ did for us. Jesus Christ willingly 
took our place, became sin, the penalty, took the penalty of sin for us, so that now you and I can go free. Not that we are innocent, but He took our place. What a beautiful thing is the doctrine of imputation. But understand this. Just because Jesus Christ died for the sins of the whole world does not mean that the whole world is going to heaven. It's very clear in Scripture. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Enter ye in at the straight gate. Remember what straight is? Like you're hedged in. He talked about the two, two ways. The way to destruction is broad. And what did Jesus say? Many there be which go in thereat. The way to eternal life is narrow. So narrow that it is one person, Jesus Christ. And few there be that find it, Jesus said. Have you come the narrow way through Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in Him alone for your salvation? That's how a person gets saved. If you're born again, that's how you got saved. So, salvation, it is not earned, but it is accepted. I have accepted Him as my substitute. And I have stepped away from the situation. I've taken hands off. And now, and we'll look at this next week because the second part of this, I don't have my own righteousness at all. And that's what's not going to be needed. I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I hope you do too. Now, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Not only is it not earned but accepted, but it is wholly His work and not ours. That's another thing that imputation teaches us. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. And then after I read that to you, we're going to go to Philemon chapter 1. Philemon chapter 1. That's going to be a challenge to find that in the New Testament. But 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24 Peter says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. What a blessing. Uh, This special, you know, his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree. Folks, all of our sin, 100% of it, Past, present, and future. He bore it all. Nobody else came in and did part of it. Jesus Christ paid for our sins in His body on a tree that we being dead to sins should live under righteousness. Now, turn to Philippians chapter 1. This is the quintessential illustration of what imputation is. And it's an example. It's an illustration from the life of of Philemon and Onesimus. Onesimus was a servant of Philemon. And at one point, uh, Onesimus ran away (coughs) and uh, apparently came across the Apostle Paul, heard the Gospel, and got saved, and then began to be discipled by Paul. And Paul, recognizing uh, that he had an obligation to Philemon, Uh, In other words, Onesimus severed ties, did not leave on the right foot, didn't leave the right way. 
uh, and now he's claiming to be saved, and that could definitely be a stumbling block to, to Philemon. And so Paul sent Onesimus back with a letter, the letter of Philemon, what we have, the book of Philemon, and Onesimus carried it back to Paul, and in it was an appeal that Philemon would take Onesimus back and not penalize him for, for fleeing. Now I want you to look at Philemon 1 and verse 17, because Paul put some pressure on him. He says to Philemon, he says, If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him, that's Onesimus, as myself. If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. That right there is imputation. It is, uh, and, and by the way, remember, the word imputation is just a translation of Greek or Hebrew words that oftentimes don't have the significance of this doctrine we're talking about. Sometimes it simply means to think, to know, to reckon. Uh, and so you have to look at the context to see, is this being used in an accounting sense? Because that's where the idea of imputation is. And not every time this term is used, whether the Hebrew or the Greek word, is it used in this sense. But when it is, and here's, this, is, this is a perfect example of what the concept of imputation is. Verse 18, If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. Verse 19, I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand, I will repay it. He is, ta- he is asking Philemon to take whatever debt that Onesimus had and put it to Paul's account and Paul would make it right. That's imputation. And by the way, <laughs> listen to what Paul says after. I love this. In the middle of verse 19, he says, I will repay it. Albeit, he's saying, however, I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me even thine own self besides. Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels in the Lord. He's telling him to release Onesimus from the debt. He is. Uh, but he's, he's saying, you know, if he owes you anything and that's a big deal, I'm going to pay you if you really want to do that. <laughs> you know, because you know, you kind of owe me here. But what a beautiful picture of imputation. So what? Onesimus goes off scot-free if... We don't, we don't know how Philemon responded. We assume he responded with a love for Paul and, and was able to take back Onesimus. In fact, there's more here to, than we've read as far as, you know, that um, ho- hopefully Onesimus became a very trusted servant after that point. But what a blessing. Let me read to you what one Bible encyclopedia says now in light of this. What imputation is now is the doctrine Imputation is simply, uh, and we're talking about now when it's used in the accounting sense. Imputation is simply the charging of one with something. It does not change the inward state or character of the person to whom something is imputed. When, for example, we say that we impute bad motives to anyone, we do not mean that we make such a one bad. And just so in the scriptures, the phrase to impute iniquity does not mean to make one personally bad, but simply to lay iniquity to their charge. Now, let's talk about that for a minute. Because 
it was Jesus Christ's work that paid our debt so that now we don't need to pay it. In fact, we can't pay it. If we were called to, to pay the price for our sins, we could never do it. But do you know that when Jesus was approaching the thought of Calvary and anticipating going to the cross for our sins, He knew exactly what He was doing. And He did not take it lightly. Gethsemane bears that out. But listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 17 and 18. He said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I laid down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. This commandment have I received of my Father. Jesus willingly gave Himself. And in the, in the um, Garden of Gethsemane, you may remember that uh, Jesus went off to pray. He asked Peter, James, and John to come with them. He said, please pray. And what did they do? Oh, they bared down in sleep, didn't they? They took a nap. And so Jesus went to them and said, what? Could you not wait with me? He, he totally knew what was happening and could feel the pressure. And this was probably his most dire need that he needed people praying. He needed his disciples praying with him. They didn't sense. I don't think that he sensed the gravity of it. Because several times he went back to them and, and they were not praying. They were sleeping. And then it says, when the, when the Judas and the soldiers come upon him, in Matthew 26, 51, And behold, one of them which were with Jesus, uh, because so now, now they're coming to arrest Jesus. And now Peter's going to come into action. And the Bible says in Matthew 26, 51, One of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand. By the way, it's identified in John, not here, that that was Peter. Drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Finally, Peter's getting involved here, right? Then Jesus said unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. And now listen to what he said in verse 53. He said, Thinkest thou not that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then shall the Scriptures be fulfilled, that thus it must be? See, he understood and he understood that even at that moment, he had an avenue by, of prayer to go to God and be delivered from this. He could call, call down, how did he word it again? Twelve legions of angels. One legion is 6,000 footmen and 700 horses. And he's, he's talking about way more than that. Now that's impressive. That many angels... Actually, it's even more impressive when you realize that in 2 Kings chapter 19 and verse 35, one angel killed up to 185,000 soldiers. <laughs> so, that's power. You know, at his own beck and call, he said, Peter, don't you realize what you're doing? And he, and he healed the guy, put his ear back. I would have loved to have seen that. Benny Hinn could never match that. <laughs> but Because this was a genuine healing. And... Um, you know, one writer said this, With one sword, Peter was willing to take on a small army of men, yet he couldn't pray with Jesus for one hour. Prayer is the best work we can do, and often the most difficult. So at the moment when it seemed that Jesus had nothing and no advantage, 
He knew that he still had a Father in Heaven and access to his Father and all the resources through prayer. Don't forget that. Because we have that same access. I read a story before which I'd read years ago before I was a dad. And it didn't have the impact that it had now. And it was a story years back of a small boy that was consistently coming home late uh, often from school uh, and, and would often miss his meal. And uh, one afternoon his parents sternly warned, warned him that he had to be back uh, by a certain time, uh, by dinner. And that night, the very night that his mom really put the pressure on, his son did not show up. And um, so later when he sat down to eat, the family sat down, I guess it was, the, the, he was supposed to be home before dinner, he didn't show up till after. He still made it time for dinner, but past the time they said. So he sits at his plate with his family, and there his dad sitting down with meat and potatoes, a full big plate, and there, there on his plate was one slice of bread and a glass of water. And he looked at his mom's plate, which also was full, looked at his dad's plate, looked up at his dad, no emotion, just blank stare. Then he looked down at his plate. And his dad... I love the way the story is. Um, He looked at his father's plate. The boy was crushed. The father waited for the full impact to sink in. That was critical. That for a dad, you know. I mean, you know that dad's looking at that son and seeing, but he's waiting for the impact. Maybe he was looking for the son's mouth to begin to quiver a little. But he wanted he wanted the, the son to realize. That that this is what you've done. You're not going to get a you're not going to get a meal because you clearly violated what your you, you know what your mom wanted, and it was only at that moment when he felt like his son fully realized what he did that his dad quietly switched plates, took the bread, gave his son the the big the big food, and um, then he smiled at his son. That's it. The son, the boy, when he grew up to be a man, he said this. He said, all my life I've known what God is like by by what my father did that night. Simple illustration, you know? Simple illustration. And I love that because if his dad had just, you know, as soon as they sat down, said, oh, let's switch this. And the son never realized and never, never owned his own rebellion and disobedience, there wouldn't have been a lesson there. But, and I wonder how long that was. Three minutes? Ten minutes? As they just sat there, and the boy looks at that single piece of bread and sees what everyone else is eating and lets the full impact come. Folks, that's exactly what our Heavenly Father does. But He doesn't just happily uh, switch plates with us. He wants to, and we need to understand the gravity of our sin that we have put him on calvary and no matter what we do and we can't do anything what an offense you think we can oh let me give you a few bucks for what you did no he paid the full penalty of our sin and for us to offer anything would be an offense so we come empty handed And only when the full impact of what He did for us 
is understood and our offense against Him, are we ready to allow Him to be our substitute? Last point. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. I know, we just finished up the book of 1 John. This will be a rehearsal, a little uh, refresher course on one verse here. We read earlier the word propitiation. What does that mean? And again, let's, let me go over the outline. Number point one was it is earned, not accepted. Or it is not earned, but it is accepted. Number two, it is wholly His work, not ours. And then thirdly, it is vicarious. What is vicarious? Well, let's look at this word. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2. In fact, 1 John 2 and verse 1 is, is also a, a, an important verse. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And by the way, He's the only advocate, folks. He's the only mediator. He's the only one we go to. He's, and He is the propitiation for our sins. That literally has the idea of He is the satisfaction to God's righteous demand for punishment. What He did when He took our place is the only thing that satisfies God's need for punishment for our sins. He bore it all upon Him. And so He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So what is this idea when we talk about vicarious? Vicarious, like many of our English words, simply comes from the previous uh, common language before English was the, the main popular language. In fact, before English really became a known language, there was Latin, and everybody spoke Latin. That was the, the common tongue. And uh, the word vicarious comes from the Latin. It literally means delegated. Uh, or taking the place of another substitute. And so vicarious, we use the term today. Um, you'll hear someone say, uh, you know, the parent is living vicariously through his son or daughter, like in a sporting activity, you know, and I can relate to that. You know, that, uh, you know, our, our, as older people, you know, we might relive when we see our children playing, and it, it could be said, we are living vicariously through them. Uh, we're, we're getting the experience and getting the blessing through our children now that we're kind of past our prime. That's that idea. Uh, some of you know that this past week I celebrated a significant uh, birthday. 30 times 2, somebody reminded me. Charlie, you're the one that said that that Sunday morning. 30, 30 sounded good, times 2, not as bad as what it really is. But one of my sons did a little uh, photo, photo shopping, uh, and when I came down on Sunday on, on my birthday morning, there was a couple uh, plaques, and uh, I was featured in several pictures. One of them was, you know, I'm a big Flyers fan, and uh, there on the ice were some of the today's Flyers: Travis Konechny, Ivan Provorov, and there I was. At least my head was. Uh, it looked like. Um, What's his name? It looked like uh, looked like one of the flyers, and there I was, gray hair. <laughs> there's and there's, and I thought, what was that? An alumni game or something? Uh, but you know, he took the time to make it look like I was a, a current Philadelphia Flyer, and so for just a moment, I got to live vicariously 
uh, something that would never happen. Uh, he did a couple other pictures, and one of the pictures was, there was me standing next to President Ronald Reagan, probably giving him counsel or something like that. Uh, but again, totally vicariously. Uh, in fact, I told him, wow, I'm getting old, my memory's bad, because I don't even remember meeting Ronald Reagan. But there was proof, there was the picture. So when we do something vicariously, we're doing it in the place of someone else. And Peter, in this text, in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, he's really quoting from Isaiah 53, which we read this, this evening. And what Jesus Christ did for becoming sin for us. Again, 1 Peter 2.24, Who his own self bear our sins in his body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. His stripes we were healed. And Isaiah 53, uh, He was wounded for our transgressions, He was bruised for our iniquity, and the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He bore our punishment vicariously. Perfect example in the Old Testament in Leviticus chapter 16. You're familiar with the two goats. And you might remember that what they had to do at the, on the Day of Atonement, they had to do this every year, the high priest would lay his hands on one of the ghosts. And literally, there was a picture here. There was no magical where the sins of the people actually somehow were all piled inside the body of the main priest. And then somehow all those sins were then flooded onto the goats. But the picture was, when the priest laid the hands on the goats, that he was transferring the whole sins of the people of Israel onto the goats. And they had two goats that they would do this. With two, two end results. The one goat they killed as a sacrifice. And that was a picture of what Jesus Christ would eventually do for us. And then the other goat was let free into the wilderness. You may remember just within the last year we talked about the scapegoat. And a beautiful story there. Uh, but that, that goat was let free into the wilderness. It was supposed to never be heard from again. Illustrating the fact that our sins and our iniquities, God remembers no more. Why? Because Jesus Christ paid that penalty. I close with this. This was the book. This, this book came out in 1973. And it, it's called the, the Miracle on the River Kwai. Written by uh, Ernest Gordon. And he tells the story of Scottish soldiers who were captured by, their, by the Japanese and forced into hard labor to build railroads in, in the jungle. And uh, it was brutal. Uh, the strain of the abuse as a prisoner of war under forced labor caused the morale to sink so low that the men began to just not care about anything or anyone, including one another. They became uh, like vicious, barbaric to each other. Until, he writes in the book, one day, one afternoon, something happened. And the event of these next few minutes would change everything 
among the mentality and the morale of the entire prison camp. Apparently during this checkpoints as they along these the railroads, there were tool checks where you'd have to check the tools, make sure there were X number of shovels and so forth. And during one of the checkpoints, a shovel was missing. And these Japanese captors were very brutal. And, uh, and one of the, the leaders in the, of, of the Japanese soldiers demanded to know who had the missing shovel. And he meant it. He asked, nobody responded. Nobody, nobody came forward and said, I have it. And that infuriated the, the leader of, of the guards. And he was so mad that he threatened, if somebody didn't come forward, he's going to take, he was going to start shooting people one by one. And he meant it. And the prisoners knew he meant it. So finally, one of the men stepped forward. And the officer put away his gun, took out a shovel, and bludgeoned that man to death. And shortly after that, the next checkpoint, they counted the shovels, and they were all there. They had made a mistake. There never was a missing shovel. And all of a sudden, the word spread among the captors. That man took our penalty. Because if he didn't come forward, we were all going to die. And, the, and as, as he writes the story, that transformed those, those prisoners who had degenerated it to being self-centered, just serve, try and do everything you can to survive, give no consideration to anyone else, all of a sudden there was this common inspiration. These men were motivated by the sacrifice of one of their fellow men so that when they were finally... Um, when the Allies swept in, and they were finally freed. Many of them were just, the ones that had survived were just mere skeletons. And they were finally lined up in front of their captors now, who were the prisoners. And when they had the perfect opportunity, much like Joseph did with his brothers, when they had the perfect opportunity for revenge, one of them stood forward, came forward and spoke for the whole group. He said, no more hatred, no more killing, Now what we need is forgiveness. And all that changed because of the example of one man who gave his life for them. We have a better example than that. Do we not? Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, came forward and took our sin penalty 100%. Now, if that doesn't motivate us to love, nothing will. Imputation. He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Is he your substitute? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We rejoice tonight at Calvary. We thank you, Lord. We are humbled by what Jesus Christ did for us. Thank you for that great gift of love. 
Help us to receive it. Help us to accept it as our own and rejoice in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's all stand and we will close in song.